Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight thanking you, first of all, for your son Jesus, thanking you for forgiveness of sin, and thanking you that you live and you rule and you reign. Father, we, as we study tonight in this history and we think about origins of this Quaker movement, we, Father, we know that uh, what happened in those early Quakers' lives is because of what you did. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for everything. We pray that as we study, we might be enlightened, that we might be informed, and that through it all, you would draw us closer to you and we would use it to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, be obviously a bit different from Sunday sermons. A few prefaces to this four-week study. We're obviously going to be looking at Scripture, of course, um, but we're also going to be learning Quaker history, so I want to be quoting Quakers and looking at Quaker events. And so, a, lot of, a little bit, bit more extra-biblical than you might be used to on a Sunday morning. Um, secondly, I'm going to try to be unbiased. We're researching and discussing mostly the evangelical friends, which is what we're a part of. Um, but we will be looking at divergences and splits in Quaker history. That's going to be next week. I don't intend to teach anybody liberal Quakerism, but I also don't intend to judge them. We're just looking at what, what's happened in history. Thirdly, we're looking at um, where Quakerism comes from. I'm not trying to sell you on it, nor do I believe here's God's gift to the world. But if you gain a deeper respect for Quakers, as I have, researching, great. If you don't, at least you'll know some history, and I hope it's enlightening, if you excuse the pun. <laughs> but, uh, Is that on the followers of the light or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inner lights. Inner lights, with all that being said, I'll give you a brief outline of our four sessions. Um, it might turn into five. <laughs> we'll see. The, the first session was kind of a bit longer, but I, all the stuff I found for this first night was really helpful, I think. We're going to look at origins, kind of where it started. And, of course, whenever we say that about any religious movement, it all started with Jesus. But where the Quaker movement started and kind of the, the founder, if you will, a guy named George Fox, we're going to really look at some of the things he went through. Second week, next week, we're going to look at splits and divergences in French churches and why one French church may not look like another. Third week will be a brief overview of evangelical friends, what denomination this is a part of and, and why and where they're at. Last session, I'll finally move away from history and we're going to focus really on tenets and beliefs of, of friends, uh, distinctions, if you will, and obviously going through history, we're not going to we're going to be touching on doctrine anyways, uh, but we're going to just really look at that last week on doctrines. Lastly, I want to make you known to some resources um, that I'm using, and that if you, hey, say if I whet your appetite, and uh, then I don't explore it as much as you wish I would have, I'm drawing heavily from a book I didn't bring with me called, uh, um, because it's at my house, because I'm reading it a lot, it's called uh, A Garden of the Lord, that right there, and... Um, that one right there. And it's just actually a history of Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends, which is what we're a part of. Um, but at the very beginning, the preface in the first chapter talks about George Fox and talks about kind of the synopsis I'm following. And uh, as we go later on into sessions, I'll probably be using it more because I want everybody to know where Woodland French Church came from. And so that's another book. Um, I also ordered, I gave you this, Meet the Friends, uh, a guy named Paul Anderson. He's 
still alive and well, a kicking professor at, at George Fox University. Really good book, really quick and easy read. Um, and actually another book that I'm going to be using whenever we do our series on simplicity, he wrote a book called Following Jesus, which is kind of a more thorough examination of doctrines. And, and whenever I read him, he's very well studied biblically. He gives you all the scriptures for why Quakers believe what they believe, so really good book. And also another book, this is what every Quaker tells me to read, A Testament of Devotion. It's kind of a classic by a classic Quaker named Thomas R. Kelly, and he was around in the early 1900s. So, And then also uh, one thing I want to make available for you, you might notice on your third page, of your outline is I did a series um, on Sundays here back in 2015, right before the fire took off, and uh, it was uh, on what I called biblical oatmeal. I was making a pun with Quaker oats and uh, Quakerism in the scriptures, and those are just, I did about five or six sermons on some of the tenets and pet doctrines, if you will, of the Quaker church, so if you're interested in that, so, with all that being said, though, let's study our origins of Quakers. In order to see why Quakers happened, though, I kind of want to take us back to, to if you're like me and you grew up outside of a Quaker circle, you knew, nothing, knew really little to nothing, or at least for me, I knew little to nothing about Quakers other than William Penn, and that's about it. But um, what I did know, and actually whenever I was taught in uh, public school, was about a rebel monk named Martin Luther. And so if you start with him, just uh, that guy briefly in 1517, it's going to lead us to 126 years later, to 1643, to a 19-year-old named George Fox. But Luther um, is a controversial guy, and if you've studied a little bit about him, you maybe have found reasons to not like him. <laughs> but uh, what we can agree on is that he broke away from the Catholic Church, and his reasonings were largely triggered by Papal indulgences, Rome <clears throat> needed money for a big church named St. Peter's Basilica, and a friar was coming through where uh, Martin Luther lived in Germany to sell indulgences. And the indulgences that this friar was selling were basically official waves of punishment in purgatory. So Catholic theology, purgatory, in simple words, is just believed to be placed that after you die, Jesus' death just didn't happen to be enough to pay for your sins. So purgatory is a place you go to to be fully purged, and punishment is fully and thoroughly absolved, and so as to make a person really pure for heaven. <laughs> and so what this pope was doing was signing these papers that's saying, hey, if you buy these pieces of paper that just happen to be funding their church, um, you pay much money, you have less punishment to worry about in purgatory, because God sees you're giving to the work of the greater church. Luther hears of this, and his controversial 95 Theses is posted on his wall there in Wittenberg on October 31st, uh, 19, or 1517, and he's basically doing this, really he never had the intention to break away from the Catholic Church, his intention was what should be allowed in any Christian circle, and that is, can we discuss theology? He says, uh, when did the Church get the authority to do this? It's God alone who forgives sins, it's God who, he's in charge of salvation, he sets up the whole process, when did the Church have the right to handle something like this? And so, very loose language, but that's the general idea of what's happening. We won't go into it too far. But, as you might know, this is kind of a fountainhead moment uh, for what becomes known as the Protestant Reformation. 
And so beyond a fight about theology, it becomes more of a social fight. It becomes really a war, because in that day, church is very much married to the state. And so theological differences become social differences, become legislative differences, and then before too long, nations are literally splitting over these theological battles. Uh, at least today, if you have a theological difference that's so divisive, you can split a church denomination without having to separate borders and nations. But, uh, kind of an interesting side note, uh, Martin Luther is obviously, he's not the first guy, nor is the Lutheran church the first body, which we might consider believers who separate from the Catholic church. If you read a book uh, called The Pilgrim Church, which I didn't mention before, but it's by a guy named E.H. Broadbent, he discusses many groups from all the way right after the, the first apostles, up until Luther and afterwards that also separated and the Catholics called them heretics, but if you actually read their writings, you realize they're just trying to be more like the Bible and their communities. So this has been happening. But Luther seems to be the guy who captured the world's attention, and through blood, sweat, and tears, he broke away successfully, <laughs> depending on how you decide to find that. And his movement lived, and separate denominations started forming. Um, and Luther was not the only guy in his time who did this. You think about Tyndale and Wycliffe and people before and after who contradicted Catholic teaching and they wanted the Bible to be printed in common language so people can understand it. And then they were facing charges of being heretic and burning before it, before Luther. There's a problem with these splits, though. Many look at Luther's movement or other Reformation Protestant movements with sympathy because of martyrdom. Um, people denounce biblically incorrect Catholic teaching. Catholics hunt them down, burnt them at the stake. Well, the problem is, is the theological differences were the brunt of the split, but there was hardly any behavioral differences. And what I mean by that is uh, we find that state churches were pretty brutal to people who disagreed with them. <laughs> so you had Protestant churches leaving the Catholic church being persecuted, and then within a decade or two after Luther's Reformation takes off, you have what is called the Radical Reformation. And these are the Anabaptists and the Mennonites who then have the Amish. These people believe the Reformation did not reform the church enough. Um, hence, radical, which means from the root. They wanted to get back to the root of Christianity. And I can't overemphasize what to me seems to be hypocrisy, that there's all these state churches that what they had experienced from Rome, but now in turn, since their church becomes state institutions, they would then persecute Anabaptists. And one would have to ask what's so terrifying about folks who believe in peace. <laughs> so um, a lot of, lot of torture, a lot of martyrdom in the Anabaptist movement. As we move toward the founding of Quakerism, we think about England. Uh, 17 years after Luther posted his 95 Theses in 1534, King Henry VIII separated the English church from Rome. As many know, he did it primarily, if not solely, because he wanted an annulment from his wife Catherine. No heirs were being provided, so um, for political reasons, or maybe even conscientious reasons, the Pope refused that annulment. And so King Henry VIII kind of took advantage of Protestantism, of all these theological branches, and he just called himself the supreme head of the Church of England. His theology really did not change from Catholicism, revealed that that were his entire motives were his marriage. And so the Pope excommunicated him, and King Henry VIII founded the Church of England. Then Henry VIII 
was, as I said, still largely Catholic in his faith and practice, but this set the stage for the reality that many within England had other views about Protestantism. They were less Catholic. So some historians think that King Henry VIII's brash, I want a divorce, so I'll make my own church, type thinking, entered the English psyche, so not to mention all the other reformers and Protestants across Europe, but suddenly rebelling against authority and rebelling against church authority and getting away with it seemed like an okay option to take. So by the time George Fox comes on the scene in the middle of the 17th century, there are a few religious movements happening in England. You have the Church of England, um, and since it was the Church of England, even in George Fox's time, this was the only legal, acceptable church that Englishmen were able to attend. But all the other groups that were in England were um, considered dissenters. So the Church of England said you can't attend all these people, although all these people were already in England at the time of George Fox. Uh, church of England and English law said you couldn't attend those. That doesn't mean they didn't stop Englishmen. They were still attending and paying fines for it and so forth. Um, so you, you think about the Puritans and Separatists. They, excuse me, leave for America in the 1620s. Um, besides Puritans, there were Baptists, Unitarians, Presbyterians. Then there were two less known groups and very obsolete groups, non-denominational and decentralized groups, known as ranters and seekers. Now, this is interesting because many ranters and seekers would eventually join Quakers, and you can tell how they influenced Quakers, or maybe just Quakers naturally agreed with them. But according to Wikipedia, um, excuse me, not that one, but according to Wikipedia, uh, ranters, quote, denied the authority of churches, of scripture, and uh, the current ministry and services, and instead they called on all men to listen to the divine within them. Um, ranters were known for what we call cheap grace, <laughs> to the extreme. Um, theologians call it antinomianism, anti-meaning against nomia, coming from the word for law, and that is they believe salvation by faith through grace freed people entirely to sin all they want because grace covers it all. Sounds like something Paul preached against in his book. <laughs> So there's no reason to follow any law. That's kind of what ranchers believed. Uh, they were known to be really immoral, loose, blah, blah, blah. Seekers were another group that had a less defined idea of beliefs. They were not as bad, if you want to call that, as ranchers. Uh, they said uh, seekers considered all organized churches of their day corrupt, but they preferred to wait for God's revelation. And seekers really had meetings free of church ritual. They met in silence. And they were mindful of direct inspiration and guidance. Uh, seekers shunned creeds, and they embraced kind of a broad spectrum of ideas. So you kind of see how those two groups, if you know anything about Quakers, kind of play into what Quakers do believe. George Fox was born in July of 1624, so three years after the uh, Mayflower. Uh, many believed that he was born to Puritan parents because he was born into a village that was heavily influenced by the Puritans. His dad, Christopher Fox, was a weaver and a church warden, which was what we call today a steward and a, or a deacon. Uh, George Fox, in his journals, he admits that he was really the church boy, goody two-shoes, pious, kind-hearted, loved everybody, was really trying to be righteous and holy. He says by age 11, he felt like God had taught him how to be pure and righteous to God inwardly and people outwardly. We also read from his journals, he says, when I came towards 19... 
years of age, and I do have these quotes also later in your packet, so if you're like, wow, I would like to read those later again. But when I came towards 19 years of age, he says, Being upon business at a fair, one of my cousins, whose name was Bradford, having another professor with him, came and asked me to drink part of a jug of beer with him. I, being thirsty, went in with them, for I loved any who had a sense of good or that sought after the Lord. And so we should take note that this professor is likely, any professor at a college that day was religious and thought to be a, a, you know, a pastor or priest or trained to be one. And so he said, when we had drunk a glass apiece, they began to drink healths and called for more drink, agreeing together that he that would not drink should pay off. I was grieved that any who made a profession of religion should offer to do so. They grieved me very much, having never never had such a thing put to me before by any sort of people. Wherefore, I rose up, and putting my hand in my pocket, took out a groat, and laid it upon the table before them, saying, If it be so, I will leave you. He says, So I went away, and when I had done my business, returned home, but did not go to bed that night, nor could I sleep, but sometimes walked up and down, and sometimes prayed, and cried to the Lord, who said unto me, Thou seest how young people go together into vanity, and old people into the earth. Thou must forsake all young and old, keep out of all, and be as a stranger unto all. Then, at the command of God, the ninth of the seventh month, 1643, I left my relations and broke off all familiarity or fellowship with young or old. So, in common English, if you missed it, Fox is 19 years old. He's invited invited into a tavern by his cousin. His cousin's with also a professor or clergyman. They start having a drink. And once they, once they begin drinking, they basically say the first one to stop drinking is the guy who's going to buy for everyone. Fox is as aghast at this hypocrisy. He says, you're religious people, you're, you're supposed to be Christians. He leaves the tavern. He's so disillusioned by this event that even at home he, can't, he stays awake, he can't sleep or think. He says, God shows up and says to him, you see how young people waste their life and old people just get old and die. You must forsake worldly people, come out from among them. And uh, be a stranger, which is kind of what is said in 1 Corinthians 5, I believe. So July 7th, 1643, George left his home and all that he knew. And uh, I didn't have it in my notes here, but you notice he says the 7th month, 1643, the 9th of the 7th month. Um, Quakers, especially in that time, and George Fox, they would not use the actual names of the months because they were from pagan gods. Same with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so... You know, so the seventh month is July, so, and then the ninth day, so anyways. Well, he would go on to state in his journals, Foxwood, that though he returned home three years later, he went out and traveled, he returned home by the age of 20, but he's not let go of this depression. He's just so distraught by just the state of, of Christianity, if you will, at this time. He's disillusioned in his hometown, possibly from the Puritans, and so he begins to seek counsel from any Christian teacher, no matter their denomination, whether it be Catholic or Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. He's he's seeking counsel from them because he he thought, well, the Puritans aren't right if this is how they act. And so it's either a sign of the times or Fox just happens to be the unfortunate guy that needs some rather nasty people because no one is helping him. Um, he's, he's finding more reason to be disillusioned by Christianity. Uh, this book, Garden of the Lord, Ralph Beebe summarized it really well. Um, he says, George, um, Ralph Beebe says about this traveling and the people who were trying to help George Fox, he says, some were helpful, but many had little time for him. He said, George Fox said, that one priest seemed like, quote, an, an empty hollow cask, 
Another raged as if his house had been on fire when George Fox clumsily stepped on his flower bed. A minister to whom he turned to was found to be, quote, angry and pettish. Another prescribed a rather unspiritual remedy of physique and bloodletting. One answered Fox's deep soul cry by advising him to smoke tobacco and sing psalms. To this, George Fox affirmed that, quote, tobacco was a thing I did not love, and psalms I could not sing. <laughs> George Fox was so deeply disappointed when one counselor told Fox's troubles and sorrows and griefs to his servants, so that I got among the milk lasses which grieved me, says George Fox, that I should open my mind, my mind to such a one. I saw that they were all miserable comforters, and this brought my troubles more upon me. Now, in this era, for many Christians, there was definitely this sense that there was one church that had to be right, and all other obsoletes. And so, in our day and age, most people scoff if a church says, we're the only way of salvation through attendance at our denomination, or even if some say at our local body, as if poor world, they don't live in that one area. However, we also remember that Fox is living about 20 years after, 20 years in a century after the biggest split the church world has ever known, Luther. And uh, there is this angst in Fox that he's seeking spiritual guidance, that he's also likely seeking what church is right. <laughs> no longer is there just the Catholic Church and the Church of England, but there's all these other groups. So it's rather amazing to him when he realizes the following. He writes this also in his journal. He says, about at the beginning of the year 1646, so he's about 20, a consideration arose in me at how it was said that, quote, all Christians are believers, both Protestants and Papists. And the Lord opened to me that if all were believers, then they were all born of God and passed from death to life, and that none were true believers but such. And though others said that they were believers, yet they were not. At another time, the Lord opened unto me that being bred at Oxford or Cambridge was not enough to fit and qualify men to be ministers of Christ. And I wondered at it because it was the common belief of people. But I saw it clearly as the Lord opened it unto me and was satisfied and admired the goodness of the Lord who had opened this thing unto me that morning. But my relations were much troubled that I would not go with them to hear the priest. For I would go into the orchard or the fields with my Bible by myself. I asked them, did not the apostles say to believers that they needed no man to teach them, but as the anointing teacheth them? Though they knew this was scripture and that it was true, yet they were grieved because I could not be subject in this matter to go to hear the priest with them. But I brought them scriptures and told them they, there was an anointing within man to teach him and that the Lord would teach his people himself. So a few things here. First off, Fox is using this word opening. And it's used somewhat in Quaker circles. And I think that you're seeing that Fox is remaining in orthodoxy. <laughs> so opening in this sense, and what Fox and Quakers use, is when the Lord reveals something to us personally. And not reveal as in something new or separate from the Bible, but something that is relevant to a situation that we're going through. Opening. And um, relevant for Fox is that the Lord was saying to him, you know, I really don't pay attention to denominational labels. <laughs> You know, God's saying, I'm not coming back just for the Catholic Church, <laughs> or I'm not coming back just for the Assemblies of God or, or the Nazarenes. And so Fox says, all Christians are believers if they are believers. And opposite, simply because someone says they're a believer because they're in this church or that church, doesn't necessarily mean they are believers. I left out some quotes, but I think you, you heard this in the text. 
Um, he, Fox also said a minister isn't qualified by their education. If one hasn't been bred at Oxford or Cambridge, that, that, that doesn't disqualify them if they weren't bred there or, or educated there. This is kind of news for Fox. <laughs> and it's kind of off-putting for his family. Uh, his family was trying to urge him to continue to come to church and listen to the minister. And Fox is kind of saying, I have a Bible and God teaches me through the Bible. Is that okay? <laughs> and, and he said, quote, Did not the apostles say to believers that they needed no man to teach them, but as the anointing teacheth them? And then Fox goes on to say, Though they knew that this was scripture and that it was true, yet they were grieved because I could not be subject in this matter to go and hear the priest with them. Fox is not pulling this out of thin air. <laughs> um, we read 1 John 2.27, that the anointing you receive from him, God, remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as he taught you remain in him. Uh, or we think about the new covenant, talked about in Jeremiah, we looked at this in our sermon last Sunday, no longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. So they will all know me. Um, John 6.45, Jesus quotes that. And so George Fox is kind of disillusioned with the moral failings and the lukewarmness and the superficiality of the ministers who have failed to comfort him, and he's taking to heart these verses. Uh, he says, I have the word of God, I believe that I have the Holy Spirit, I'm going to listen to him. Now, again, in that day and age, mid-1600s, even though Bibles were now available for mass reading, you know, 1611 is when the King James came out, there was still this deep loyalty to hearing teachers and ministers. It's against the law to attend any other churches except the Church of England at this time. And so though everyone has Bibles, and everyone still does, though, what the priest or the clergyman says. And, and so Fox is running into headbutting, and you get the sense that his family is, well, okay, Fox, yeah, George, that's what the Bible says, but come on, let's go to church, it's the right thing to do, It's kind of what they're doing. And so Fox's theology develops. Um, I should make mention that Fox is not just rebelling against ministers because he, hate, because he hates ministers, that's not what's happening. He and other people are going to start preaching themselves. All Fox is doing here is realizing that he does not necessarily need a pastor to commune with God. He doesn't hate pastors. He's still going to listen to pastors, and he's going to preach himself. But he doesn't always need a pastor to commune with God. And so, again, it's kind of against the time idea. And But for Fox, it's really a watershed moment. It's going to eventually lead him out of his depression that he's been in. And he's been searching for counsel for many ministers and many churches. He's feeling no access to the truth. He felt no connection to God, no connection to console his feelings. And so when he starts gaining confidence that the Lord does speak to him personally and teaches him personally, he begins to spread that idea around to people. In his journals, he talks about discussing and correcting many of the decentralized dissenting groups of religious people, the, the ranters and seekers, uh, one example is he mentioned that a group of people believed that women had no souls. <laughs> and so Fox kind of says, that's interesting. I'm pretty sure Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. I guess Mary was the exception. You know, that sort of thing. That's my sarcastic rendition of Fox's correction. But I want you to know that, that George Fox loved the Bible. <laughs> He's finding confidence in his beliefs because of the Bible and not in spite of it. In fact, he knew his Bible so well that one biographer I read said that he could quote most of it from memory. 
So that's George Fox. <clears throat> as soon as he started acting up upon the confidence that he's truly taught by God personally from the Bible, and he wants to spread that around, but then he begins to realize he's rather lonesome. Because he's saying something rather new in that day and age, not new, but rather unorthodox, according to those people. Um, he's obviously not part of an established church. He's not professionally trained. He's rather young. He's actually getting, beginning to get ostracized by his family. He's ostracized by religious professionals. You know, you didn't go through the education we went through. You're not a pastor. He, he took leave of what he called evil company kind of that moment in the tavern type thing. He couldn't stand hypocrisy, George Fox. And he was kind of radical in believing in a personal purity and piety was a big deal. We talked about the state churches that were different in theology but not different in behavior. And so he, he calls himself a wanderer, George Fox does. He's, he says he doesn't stay in one place too long. He'll be persecuted, which he was. And he says that in his lonesomeness he had moments of joy, so glad of his newfound confidence and trust and the Lord's personal guidance, yet his disillusionment with the priests and the pastors gave him kind of this separation and disdain. And so kind of the big moment for Quakers, he writes in his journals, Now after I had received that opening from the Lord, that to be bred at Oxford or Cambridge was not sufficient to fit a man to be a minister of Christ, I regarded the priests less, and I looked more after the dissenting people. So these were the ranchers and seekers. And then Fox then says, Among them I saw that there was some tenderness, and many of them came afterwards to be convinced, for they had some openings. Another Quaker term, we talk about openings, but another word here is convinced. That's kind of a big Quaker term. They don't use conversion too much, they use convinced, because, again, George Fox believed that believers can be believers, despite what any priest or clergyman might say, so they might be in different churches and if they happened to be convinced of what George Fox was saying was true, as in, hey, that is in the Bible, and hey, you are talking about true things, they would use the word convinced instead of converted. And um, let's see here. In this day and age, some Quaker circles might still use convinced to differentiate from birthright Quakers. <laughs> so those people who were born in a Quaker family, always been a Quaker, if you come in from the outside and you say, I'm convinced of what Quakerism is true, that some people still use that. More liberal so-called friends who don't believe really in Christianity believe you can be Quaker and Muslim or something like that. And so, but they might use that word um, convinced. I get the idea, I think they're getting the idea from George Fox that he kind of believes in a, what I would call a more conservative diversity. <laughs> and that is to be convinced is really in essence to be convinced again of the biblical teachings that Fox and soon the growing movement was espousing. So Fox said many of the dissenting groups are being convinced of what he's saying, and if you remember what I said about ranchers and seekers, that's kind of a good thing. I think they're finally, oh, George Fox still believes in the Bible. Um, people can be taught by God personally. Believers can be believers despite what established churches could say. Meanwhile, others could not be believers if there's no fruit from their um, being a Christian. While some of the more fringe groups and dissenters are convinced of what Fox is saying, so, George Fox writes, though, But as I had forsaken the priests, so I left the separate preachers also, so the separatists, and those esteemed the most experienced people. For I saw there was none among them all that could speak to my condition. So he writes, When all my hopes in them and, and in all men were gone, so that I had nothing outwardly to help me, nor could I tell what to do, then, oh, then I heard a voice which said, There is one, 
even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. And when I heard, heard it, my heart did leap for joy. So that's kind of the phrase that Quakers really love. <laughs> that's the phrase that most remember about George Fox. Most Protestants remember the 95 Thesis. I can tell you Nazarenes know a lot about Phineas Prezee, who was the founder of that church. Most Quakers know there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. But it's, it's a more personal outgrowth of what Fox is, is realizing about God teaching us personally. He realizes in the middle of his depression, what he's been learning is very practically helpful, that God can speak to where you're at right now. He's, he can talk to you. He can speak to your condition. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. He is the comforter that comes alongside us. Now, I've been obviously reading George Fox's journal. They're like available for two bucks on Amazon, I think. You just get the autobiography of George Fox. I was kind of bummed because in most Quaker history courses and books that I've been a part of, they come to this phrase and they say, ah, there's that special phrase, and then they'll fast forward to other things and they'll talk about the movement. I think some of, I like actually what George Fox better, what he says right after this phrase. He says in his journal, right after he says that, he says, then the Lord let me see that there was none upon the earth that could speak to my condition, namely that I might give him all the glory. For all are concluded under sin and shut up in unbelief, as I have been, that Jesus Christ might have the preeminence who enlightens and gives grace and faith and power. Thus, when God doth work, who shall hinder it? And this I knew experimentally. So Fox talks here that his condition, his depression, has been primarily his sin. And he feels like that he truly hasn't really believed in God. I, I thought about that passage in Mark where the father wants Jesus to heal his demoniac child, and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> That's kind of where George Fox was at. Fox was in this world where all these voices and churches and people were telling him, here's the true church. <laughs> but none of it looked appealing. There was still corruption and impurity and hypocrisy, and something looked missing. And the realization that Christ comes and lives in the believer and does life with the believer and teaches the believer personally is a whole lot better than taking lessons from hypocritical sinners in corrupt organizations. Uh, Fox continues to write, My desire after the Lord grew stronger in zeal in the pure knowledge of God and of Christ alone, without the help of any man, book, or writing. For though I read the scriptures that spoke of Christ and of God, yet I knew him not, but by revelation, and as he who hath the key did open, and as the Father of life drew me to his Son by the Spirit, then the Lord gently led me along and let me see his love, which was endless and eternal, surpassing all the knowledge that men have in the natural state or can obtain from history or books. And the love let me see myself as I was without him. So George, again, is acting on the truth that from Jesus Christ that all men can be taught by God alone. And he's saying, I don't want people to give me that idea of who Jesus is or who God is. I know I can hear it from his lips. <laughs> he's promised me as much. Uh, a lot of what George Fox is saying is taken from the Gospel of John. I'll give you a few verses. John 1, 9-13 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, and those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of the man, but of God. So verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone. In context, John has called this light the word, what we've been talking about. And this light that enlightens every man and those who receive him, verses 12 and 13, are born of God. 
Jesus says in John 5, 38-40, he's saying to Jews in context, he says, you don't have his word living in you because you don't believe in the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, and you are not willing to come to me so that you may have eternal life. So we see that in there, Jesus differentiates from a thorough familiarity of scriptures. He says, you pour over the scriptures, you know everything they say, but it's devoid of belief in Jesus, and so that's fruitless. And Jesus says, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Um, So in other words, Jesus is saying, a thorough understanding of scripture is just not enough for eternal life. We need to come to him, and in coming to him, believe in him and be taught by him. And so we are taught by him, so says Jesus. Uh, John tells us in John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you, as well as the verses I mentioned previously in 1 John and Jeremiah. Uh, I had a few more things from Fox's journal, but I think I I wanted to stop for tonight. Um, I really feel like it was important to hear the beginnings of Quakerism from George Fox himself. (laughs) So next week I'm going to hopefully cover the spread of this message a little bit, and then we're going to talk about some splits and fractures that happened. And in closing and review, um, as I've studied Quakerism, I've been at this church for almost for five years come October. And so I've been kind of crash course studying a lot. I really felt like the Quakers were the first evangelicals. (laughs) And what I mean by evangelicalism is evangelicalism in large part is described as a movement that is among many denominations. And it's centered on the conversion experience that you definitely know when you're saved. You definitely know when that happens. It's also centered on the authority of scripture as God's revelation to humanity. And it's also centered on the Great Commission. And George Fox, he shows up in this era of corruption and lukewarm Christianity, and he has this monumental conversion, and he realizes that God can personally teach him and speak to him today. Um, I believe Fox never deviates from Scripture, but he takes great confidence that the Spirit is with him and guiding him as he reads Scripture. And so then he goes out and he shares this message with all sorts of folks. And uh, again, Fox believes that there are believers in all denominations. And evangelicals know and believe that sprinkled throughout all denominations are also Christians. So you really see also, I think, how Fox's core beliefs do in some ways shape Woodland Friends. (laughs) No matter what denomination that you come from, including the pastors, (laughs) there are things that we can all agree on and that God is here teaching us personally. And we believe that uh, God can give us personal revelation from the scriptures. He can give us relevant insight um, in our Bible reading to situations we're going to that are relevant to us daily. So... And as, as George Fox said, uh, my heart did leap for joy, and he talked about the zeal and growing and the, the joy and the knowledge of God. I think we all believe here that true joy, true infinite joy, is God himself. <laughs> so uh, that's all I had, and uh, I want to go ahead and pray.